Welcome to ACNL in Action, brought to you by the Association of California Nurse Leaders. I'm Elise Shelger. June is Lesbian, Gay, Bisexual, Transgender, and Queer Pride Month, a time to celebrate and honor the LGBTQ community. And as healthcare professionals, it marks a time to recognize disparities in the healthcare system and the struggles LGBTQ individuals have with accessing healthcare and mental health services. Compared to the heterosexual population, LGBTQ individuals experience higher incidence of sexually transmitted infections, substance abuse, and mental health issues. At the same time, stigma and discrimination often prevent them from getting the care that they need. Our guest today is Dr. Austin Nation, a professor at Cal State Fullerton and clinical administrative supervisor at the Keck School of Medicine at the University of Southern California. Austin presented a study at ACNL's recent annual program in February exploring healthcare access and experiences for LGBTQ individuals living in Orange County. Welcome, Austin. We are so happy to have you here. Uh, thank you. It's such an honor and a privilege to be here with you all uh, doing this. Uh, happy Pride to everyone that's listening to this podcast as well. Um, this is always such a momentous occasion when it comes up every year and an opportunity to celebrate our community. So happy Pride to you, and we are so grateful that you were able to join us this month in June. Yay, yay, thank you. So why don't we start by having you tell us about yourself and your project? Well, um, my, uh, my, the project that I'm working on has been accessing, looking at people's experiences when accessing uh, healthcare and mental health care services here in Orange County. I'm a community-based participatory research, which essentially means that I work with a couple of community partners who are very interested and concerned about the experiences that individuals are having with various providers here in the Orange County area. And so we wanted to get a report card, per se, to evaluate people's um, experiences in terms of um, you know, how were they in terms of being good, not so good, ways we can improve, um, what was going on here in the Orange County, California area. Um, and that's sort of the genesis of how those conversations began. In partnership with a couple of um, community-based organizations that serve uh, the LGBTQ plus community, um, we put together a questionnaire and embarked then upon um, asking the community to give us some information about what were their experiences um, with the providers, um, what were their experiences um, in general with some of the staff members being in the waiting room, um, were they able to get the services they needed, were there delays in services, we asked a, a quite, a, quite a number of questions to try to paint a rich full picture of people's experiences. And so uh, from that information, I've been able to sort of sort of meld it all down and sort of come out with a nice little summary of, uh, of what we have in terms of this preliminary data. And so I'm really excited to be able to, to share this uh, with you a little bit this morning. So um, what a pleasure. We are very proud to have you willing to share with us. And it's obviously such an important topic and we are glad that you are delving into it what prompted you to launch this particular study now? 
Well, my whole trajectory in terms of uh, research experience has been in the LGBT plus community. My initial um, research study um, and studies that I was partnering with um, when I was a student at Yale and Duke universities involved looking at, particularly we were looking at um, HIV and substance use among young black gay men. Um, it, you may or may not know that young black gay men or the black community in general has a very high disproportionate number of new HIV infections. They represent about 12% of the US population and are accounting for about half of the new HIV infections. Particularly if you look at, and we drill that down, particularly you look at young black gay men uh, between the ages of 18 to 34. And among that, those, those, that age group, um, they are the majority of new HIV infections um, among um, men who are having sex with men. So that sparked my initial interest in terms of what's going on in, in, the, in the community um, in terms of uh, ways that we could understand their experiences. Where are we missing them? 35 years into this AIDS epidemic, um, somehow we've missed communities of, of color. While we have uh, our numbers sort of doing a slight downward trend in the white gay community, we're in the black and Latino communities, we're still not seeing that same kind of movement. And so somehow we're missing them. And obviously there's a number of uh, other issues that are impacting those communities, uh, disparities, their lack of trust with accessing healthcare, how they're treated once they get there, so on and so on and so on. So this new study seemed like a logical next step to begin to understand people's experiences once they started um, accessing services. And so it was a wonderful springboard for this next study. So um, uh, it, it just seemed like the, 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 the right next step. So, and I have sort of a third step plan now that I have a little bit of data. I'll just go ahead and talk about that here as well. Now that I have this data, it is clear to me that there needs to be um, some more um, education for providers around um, uh, taking care of LGBTQ plus uh, within our uh, trainings and education in the academic university settings that we're in. Uh, we're missing, we're missing, we're missing that piece. So I think that's part of the issues and I'll get more into the details as we continue to talk, but clearly that'll be my next step is to embark upon how we can get more training, more cultural competency out to our providers. Well, it's wonderful to hear a little bit about your background and, and what brought you here. And I, I think that what you're doing is really powerful. The statistics you've shared already are powerful. And we look forward to, to learning more along with you. So you've told us that you've done other research on this topic that sort of guided you into this project. And would you tell us, in your opinion and through your experience with your expertise, how bad is the problem? Your, your study has focused on Orange County, but knowing that this is a much more widespread problem, can you speak to some of the barriers LGBTQ individuals face nationally when it comes to receiving health care and mental health services? Well, yeah, I, I think the, the first thing that I think I always want, want to talk about is um, people's inability to find LGBTQ plus competent providers. I think that becomes the starting place, right? How can we in our community find those places and spaces in terms of healthcare that feel safe for us? 
to be able to talk about the fullness of our experiences and have providers who understand and know how to ask us those appropriate questions. Um, I think that becomes the, 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 the major first question. And that was obviously one of the first, the biggest barrier that we identified in our study that people don't know how to find providers who are LG, LGBTQ plus competent. Um, the second barrier that came up in our study, and this is probably reflective of the United States as well, is the financial cost. There's a high financial cost to access healthcare and uh, being able to get the services that, that you need. And so um, it, it would behoove us to then follow this up with, and I will be following this study up with doing also doing some more focus groups, which I have started to embark upon, to begin to understand how are people able to pay for these services once they get in there. You talked about at the top of our conversation, the incredibly high disparities that are in our community. They're so disproportionately high among the LGBTQ plus community compared to our heterosexual counterparts. I mean, it's, it's really painful when I um, understand what's happening in our community and we need, we need um, healthcare services. So to be able to pay for those, whether it's through a provider, government insurances, people having to pay their part out of pocket, what are people's income? Are they on fixed income? Uh, or do they have jobs that they can um, even have the ability to pay those kinds of costs? Um, it, there's all kinds of barriers to people being able to um, take on uh, the cost of, of healthcare, paying for the medications. If you're uh, a trans man or woman and you want to have hormone replacement therapy, does your insurance cover that? And what's your out-of-pocket? It goes, the list goes on and on and on and on. So it just behooves us to make these things more accessible and more available um, to the LGBTQ community. And, and, and we know nationally, not globally, but perhaps globally as well, but certainly nationally, that our transgender community is having such a difficult time right now. In some of the states around the United States where they're regulating and outlawing their ability to access services um, in, some, in some of the states. And I think that's just absolutely um, uh, ridiculous. So um, much work needs to be done. It's heartbreaking, really. And again, I just think that what you're doing is so important and you're making such a positive difference. How how do other factors, you did mention um, how some of these other factors of disparity play a role. How do they affect the barriers? I mean, I imagine when you combine them, race, religion, income level, which you mentioned, on top of being in the LGBTQ community, this must just make it extra challenging. How do you understand that? Yeah, well, you look at all of those intersections, and part of what I do with this data is I start to sort of cross do cross-section analysis and start looking at are there differences in groups. Um, we The sample size is so small, it's a pilot study, so I don't have a large data set. So we haven't pulled really um, significant differences um, out of this um, preliminary data. Um, and because particularly when I, my trans numbers are sm so small, I think so if I had two trans men or two trans women, I would be saying 50% of, you know, if one person identifies an issue, it would be 50%. So that wouldn't be such an accurate reflection of sorts. 
Um, so it's really hard at this point with this with this pilot study to be able to glean that, which is part of the reason I would want to take this and have either someone replicate the study and do a larger study. I was trying to loosely repl replicate this study from an author who um, did the study in New Jersey, sort of looking at the differences between those of us on the East Coast and the West Coast. And there were obviously some very similar issues that we identified between the coast, even with this pilot sample, but I would certainly want um, a, a larger sample size. But when you think of these intersections of a person's identity and who they are, um, fundamentally, I'll just say it, and we talk about that, we're talking about this now in nursing, particularly in light of George Floyd incident, the issue around racism, racism in nursing, racism in healthcare, certainly was raised as an issue with folks in terms of their experiences um, when, when accessing health care that did come up in our, in our um, uh, data. Um, other issues people have, um, issues around homophobia still exist when they're accessing health care providers, issues around neglect once they're there and are, how are they being treated, issues around mistreatment. I mean, it even goes so far um, in my data. I talk about transphobia. Um, I, it, but it goes so far as to talk about people being subjected to abuse and violence at the hands of a healthcare provider. And that is, to me, is unbelievable that that would be happening um, when people are going into a, a, a profession, helping professions that are there to take care of the lives of the citizens of our, of our state, of our, of our nation, um, that we would be so cruel or it's so hurtful to people, rather intentionally or unintentionally, I think there's no excuse for not beginning to be more sensitive to people's differences, right? Um, racism, um, religious, there's people that obviously are able to buy out of some of this because of their religious um, differences and they use that as an excuse to sort of mistreat people. These things are not okay. Um, we need, we're there to take care of folks as nurses, as, as professional people, whoever presents to us, whether they're poor, they're rich, they're black, they're white, they're Latino, whoever they are, that's how I was taught, right? I'm there to take care of my patient, whoever, whoever is there. Um, understanding that those things that um, uh, those sort of intersections or the social determinants of health that impact this individual may certainly be present and I want to assess for those, but that certainly doesn't give me license to give, to do, to, to provide people any less care or less services uh, than the next patient. Right. Yeah. I, I think that you've made some really incredible points and it's, it does such a disservice to perpetuate the mistrust in the system. And I do hope that that is something that can be changed because without trust, we, we end up inadvertently harming many patients. Mm -hmm. Well, they won't come back, right? Yeah. If, if they have that bad experience with us, why would they come back to see us? Why would they do a follow-up? Why would we listen to what they said? If that was my, I mean, we talk about that in other industries, the importance of customer service. And we certainly look at that in healthcare. I don't know if we put enough emphasis on that. I think continue, as we continue to um, move forward as more hospitals and organizations become magnet hospitals and magnet organizations where the standards require us to be able to look at those 
um, the ways we're treating people, customer satisfaction like other industries. We want people to be able to come back to us, to give us good reviews, to give us good word of mouth marketing. I think when we start taking that on in healthcare, maybe placing a little bit more importance on that, we'll start to be more mindful of how we treat people. Even something simple as um, uh, pronouns, correct use of pronouns, asking people their preferred name, which may be different than the name that's on their driver's license or their um, insurance card, begins to show that level of awareness and sensitivity um, uh, to, to our community. So I think there's some fundamental, issue, fundamental issues that need to be addressed. And I'm, my heart is warm that I do be, begin to see some movement in that area. So I, I do feel like it's happening. I just wish there was a lot more uptake in that, in that area. So we still have lots of work to do. Absolutely. Well, I think that is a, a good lead into um, my next question, which is about starting to look at solutions. And identifying problems is always a, a great first step. And next, we need to try and find ways to improve it. One of the biggest barriers your study found was finding providers who are LGBTQ competent. And what kinds of competencies do healthcare providers need when assisting LGBTQ patients versus heterosexual or cisgender patients? Mm -hmm. Well, the two questions I ask have to do with knowledge and sensitivity. Is your provider knowledgeable about issues that are relevant to LGBTQ plus folks, right? And are they sensitive to uh, the needs of LGBTQ plus? And actually, there's a third question. How comfortable are you talking to your provider about your gender um, uh, identity, your sexual orientation, matters that are important to you to talk about that I should feel comfortable as a, as a queer identified person talking to my provider about when I go into a visit and they're asking me their, their usual plethora of questions, right? And so um, most of the people are saying somewhat. They're somewhat comfortable. Now, of course, now I don't know what that means on a scale of asking them, um, you know, extremely somewhat, somewhat not, and extremely not. Most people are falling into the somewhat category. So I begin to wonder, this is where my focus groups will come in handy to, to say, why are people not saying they're extremely um, knowledgeable or extremely sensitive. If nothing else, sensitivity, maybe you don't have the knowledge, but certainly you, you can, you can be a sensitive provider. It doesn't, I mean, it doesn't take us much in terms of our training and our education to be able to, to be sensitive to a patient when we come in and we realize that this person is LGBTQ plus identified, that we can be, have some sensitivity, some compassion, to this individual and, and their needs as they, as we engage with them. Um, knowledge may take a little bit more. Like I said, that may take some training. That may take a little bit more education on our part, some continuing education, some CEUs, CMEs, something along those lines. But sensitivity costs us nothing um, to make people begin to, to feel comfortable. And then the questions that we ask people need, need to be changed. We need to minimize our assumptions of folks, assuming that people are, I think most of healthcare becomes very heteronormative for folks' experiences. So if as a provider, if you're making assumptions that you see, for example, two women come in, you assume they're friends, they could be partners, right? You see a wedding ring, you assume that, that you know, they're both, they're married to, to men, they may be married to each other. 
you know, or a, a woman, a trans woman, right? We don't think to ask her, uh, she still may have male organs and male health issues. We're not, we're, not, we're not trained and educated to ask those kinds of questions, to be aware of those kinds of questions. And there are tons of resources out there. So if you don't know, there's certainly enough resources out there in the world at your fingertips, particularly now in the age of, you know, this, this internet thing that we could reach out to folks that, who have expertise in those areas for additional guidance. So to me, there's hardly any reason for us not to be able to navigate those issues or tell a patient that, hey, you know, I'm not that familiar with this. So let me perhaps refer you to someone who, who I think could be more helpful if we had that person in our network. So um, people can get the care and support and um, the kindness that they need from us in healthcare. So we can engage them and help. And at the end of the day, bring down some of these disparities. Absolutely. So much of healthcare, it needs to be individualized. And when everybody is treated the same and not as an individual, a lot can be missed in those assessments, mm-hmm. treatment plans. So back to suggestions for improvement. We know that diversity, equity, and inclusion programs have been gaining a lot of traction lately. We did an episode about diversity, equity, and inclusion a few months ago, in fact, and ACNL is hosting a webinar a few days after this episode airs. How much do you think these programs help raise awareness of the barriers disadvantaged populations face? I'm glad we're talking about it. I'm glad, I think if nothing else, this has um, forced us to re-engage some of the issues. Um, I I wonder in some places, spaces, if we're not just giving lip service to it, um, will changes actually really be able to be made? Um, I certainly am an advocate for it, Um, much like I saw at the beginning of my career, so 40 years ago, the, the EEO opportunities where they were looking for more minorities and more women in, in, in certain professions that they opened up those opportunities. To me, we saw benefit from that, right? Uh, as a whole, we gave opportunities to places. I think about medicine where you hardly ever saw a female physician. Now we have some, you know, you have, you know, 50% plus of women that are physicians in our country. Who would have thought that those jobs for women would have ever changed other than teachers and nurses in my lifetime, right? So opening up opportunities for people who are different than maybe what we thought they would be, to me, only brings the beauty of who they are, that rich culture and diversity into what we say should be a reflection of the people that we're serving. Yet that's the heart of this work that we do and some of the organizations that I work with when we talk about DEI, um, race, gender, Um, gender identification. For me, I'm always very mindful in nursing that we're also including um, men in nursing. I like to see some of that um, gender diversity um, come into our profession. I I started, it was 3%, and I think we're up to about 10, 15% um, nationally. So we're seeing more movement. Um, But I think the beauty of that begins to impact those people's lives that we take care of. When people come in and they begin to see people who look like them, that there'll be a connection that's different. Not to say care can't be provided by those that are currently providing it, but the beauty of the DEI is that it allows for a richer kind of person in our profession to come in and serve Uh, or do work in, or like I was charged with as a researcher, go back into my community and do research where perhaps others would not go. 
right? Maybe people are not as interested in LGBTQ plus community like I am because I'm from that community. So there's all kinds of wonderful pluses to the DEI richness of this fiber. If we continue to pour not only this dialogue in, into, the con, in, into the mix, this conversation, but also begin to pour resources. We need to be able to back it up with some money and some resources and some action. I just read ANA just came out with their, their, their white paper on racism. I talk about the racism in nursing because I think that's a huge issue that has impacted our profession and bullying most of our profession. So it's like, how can we welcome DEI in to our profession to say we want DEI if we're still 40 years later, not being open arms to our baby nurses, I'm a professor, to our baby nurses who are still talking to me about the painful experiences they're having when they go into um, clinical settings, the lack of welcome that they get. So we're not as a community, as a profession, as a, as a culture, even doing our job in terms of ushering in and welcoming our next generation of, of nurses, no matter who they are, to say, welcome to the profession. We're glad you're here. We're willing to help you along so you can then be a part of our, 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 our group and help and or carry the torch. If some of us are near the end of our careers, we want those baby nurses to be able to come behind us and carry the, ter- carry the torch. And um, there's a rich, diverse beauty of fabric that's coming behind us now. We want them to feel welcomed and we want them to stay and become some of the exceptional nurses that I know they will be for our, for well, at least taking care of me when I get older. So uh, that's top of my wish list. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, the theme that I'm hearing is actions speak louder than words. And I think we can all agree with that. DEI programs are a step in the right direction, and I think open the conversation, which is always important, and action is equally, if not more important, so I look forward to seeing the change to come. One of the questions your study raised was, how are LGBTQ individuals getting information about provider competencies? Do you have any theories around that? Is it just word of mouth, or are there actually resources that listeners can use? That was a great question when I saw it. And I was I was like, God, you guys are so spot on because that was my issue as I was looking at this data and going, how people's people's how are people getting how are people getting information? Where is the best place for them to get the information? How is the best place to get that that information to them? Um, is there a better way, a different way that we should be doing that? Something again something that we're missing. If we know that people are um, having issues and concerns around being able to find LGBTQ providers, how can, what can we do about that problem? So one of the things I, I would certainly hope that at some point we begin to do, um, and, and some of my preliminary focus group information, I'll tell you what clues people suggested. People said to me things like, If I see a provider listed and I see pronouns behind their name, kind of like I'm doing on my my screen name, my signature, every place I have my name, you'll see he, him, his behind it. They said, that's a clue. I didn't know that. That was a clue, almost like a code word that people are sensitive to the sensitivity of pronouns. That lets them know that there is a person there that that is, you know... Uh, on, on board with that idea that that was uh, a way for them to identify. I think it would be great if we 
begin to have our providers that um, feel called to taking care of LGBT plus community, be able to identify themselves in some of the places where they list themselves as providers. Um, I'm thinking particularly of our advanced uh, practice providers, uh, physician assistant colleagues, uh, physician colleagues, um, um, uh, mental health colleagues, whoever you are, in addition to the pronouns, maybe list that as one of your um, uh, areas of specialty if you feel like you're called to that, right? Much like I felt called to become a nurse. Um, if I feel like I'm called to do this work in the LGBTQ community, I would, I would feel courageous enough because it takes courage sometimes to put that out there. And I get that. I absolutely get that in some parts of this country to put yourself out there to say, yes, I'm willing to put that as part of my, my um, identity, who I am, that I'm willing to take these people in and make myself available to them because I understand that. And I'm willing to let other people know that I do that. That can take courage. That can take courage. And I get that. But the fact that you're doing that is that you're letting people know who you are so that they, they can find you. Some places, the other way that I think people are doing it is through your local um, LGBTQ plus center. Most cities um, have a local LGBTQ plus center. Um, certainly um, uh, the, ones, the ones here where I am in Orange County, California, they have um, a, 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 a provider list that they provide it. Or, or can provide to you that um, tells you um, providers that they are aware of who are LGBTQ plus punk competent. So use those resources that are available. Um, I'm not sure how well an internet search will turn it up. I don't think we're there yet, but certainly if you um, use those resources and um, uh, make, make yourself available in that way, then I think people will begin, will begin to have uh, those places and spaces where people can go and feel safe to talk about the business of who they are. And then change your questions, your lines of questions when people get there. You need to modify maybe some of your forms mm -hmm. so that you're asking some of these simple questions. Nothing else, the simple start will be preferred name, preferred gender, right? Gender identity. If you just do, do those simple two things, right? Um, if you look at my legal name, I don't go by my legal name. I go by Austin. That's not my, that's not the name you're going to see on my paper, but that's my, my preferred name is Austin. So um, ask me what those are. It's, I mean, even now I'm so, I'm so grateful um, to my healthcare providers who recognize that when they walk in the room and say, hey, Austin, I'm whoever I am, then I know they've taken time to see my preferred name, who I am. So, and that makes such a huge difference. Then I, I know they've read it. They've read something. They've taken time to read something. So yeah, I think, yeah, customizing, individualizing that care is so important to making people feel welcome and included. And the point you made about adding pronouns, I think it's it's a public display of your allyship. And that does seem to be powerful. I totally agree. Totally agree with you on that. So there may be nurse leaders who genuinely care about LGBTQ populations, but some of the competencies they weren't taught in school. How would you recommend those people get the additional training to truly become competent in this area? Um, I would suggest for my nurse leaders to plug into, again, your local LGBTQ organizations as a start. If you're interested, uh, get connected. Invite them in as speakers. Every, every organization I have ever partnered with has a speaker um, 
division where they send people out to talk about either the services that they offer, who they are. Some have HIV speakers. You can, you can, be, you can raise your awareness by just simply making a phone call to say, there may be, you may find, um, and I think there are fewer and far between. I do, a, I see a lot across my radar, a lot of CEUs for stuff related to LGBT, uh, HIV stuff, because that's my area of expertise, mental health, substance use. I'm on those listservs. So when you find those organizations, get on those listservs. Um, LGBT um, plus obviously gay and medical um, lesbian association, GLAMA. Um, I would certainly do a plug for them, get on their list, serve. They're one of my probably favorite organizations in terms of our community that, that does work. And they have a nursing section for, for and there's some nurse, nursing leaders that are represented within that organization. I'm really am pleased over the years I've been connected with them to see them make movement in terms of um, increasing their nursing presence within the organization. So, and they do wonderful work uh, nationally. Um, it's not internationally, their impact. Um, obviously, I think another place, one of the, the places that I have uh, partnered with before is um, Human Rights Campaign, Human HRC. They have been a partner um, in many of the, the communities that I've worked with before. Um, always a great resource um, to provide education, resource leaderships. I would be curious if they were, could provide you and your organization, your staff, your people with um, uh, some CEUs around that, or maybe you can provide CEUs given having them come in and provide uh, some education and resources uh, to your organization. So those would be the ways that come to mind that you could raise your awareness. Like I said, making that initial phone call or sending that email out to someone saying, hey, we're really interested. We're seeing a growing number of either employees. I'm really happy at USC Keck Medical Center, uh, much like at Cal State Fullerton um, University. They have a Pride Alliance for our faculty staff. So there's a faculty and staff Pride Association. Uh, USC Medical Center has their Keck Pride. So um, within these, both of these organizations that I'm affiliated with, um, there, there's places of connection. And I know in those places and spaces that they're willing to um, uh, be a resource to folks, right? So, um, and some of the great work they do in terms of partnerships. So you may have nurse leaders, um, uh, partnerships right at your fingertips already, and you're not, and you may not be aware of it because you're not asking, uh, the question of, hey, within these organizations that I'm partnering with, are there already some LGBTQ plus advocates that I could, um, have, you know, connect with within within the work that I'm doing. So they may be already there. Because um, like I said, this this DEI thing is all the buzz right now. It's all the rage. So I think people are um, beginning to feel more comfortable with coming out and um, uh, making themselves known uh, in places that it, it's okay. When you have a place that it says, we have a space for you to come and there's others like you, whether it's um, like I said, LGBTQ+, whether it's African-American, whether it's Latina, whether it's Asian, um, whatever the group is, the diverse group is. Um, first gen, I think in my first gen groups, um, whatever that is, where I can find a place in, of connection with others like me, so I don't feel like I'm the only one 
you, you begin to have those conversations and then you can also become a resource to folks that are curious about, hey, what is the experiences of folks like you to come speak to the people that I have within my organization about this experience? Those are all really great ideas. I, I think tapping into that curiosity is always important. And, you know, getting out of your comfort zone and that this applies to anything, but an important step to creating change, to normalizing anything and getting more comfortable with it is overcoming the patterns of avoidance. And I think seeking out these resources, tapping into them, being open and willing to learn because with more exposure to anything, you do become more comfortable. Absolutely. I, I completely agree with you. And I'll just add, I know one of the other organizations that I'm a part of, um, they are um, within the organization there. We're, we're beginning to talk about expanding our other, well, special interest groups. So, um, you know, um, Middle Eastern and um, Northern Africa, um, special interest groups for nurses, where they're really beginning to specialize within the organizations for offering these um, special interest groups. So even ACNL, I would throw that out as a suggestion. I know they do a lot with membership, right? But are there um, diverse groups within the membership group for the nurse leaders to say, hey, Within the organization of nurse leaders, is there perhaps an opportunity for me to be able to begin to connect with folks who are um, identified as one of these other special interest groups for a number of reasons? That could, those could be added additional places of connection within the organization. And then within that, what we're doing, because I know within this other organization, is they're beginning to form these relationships and partnerships um, uh, to do, be able to do research, to be able to work together. Um, it just, it makes sense to me that, that we're doing these kinds of things to, to, because we're not always welcomed in the larger space. So, um, as we're, as we're finding these places and spaces of connection until we get to a moment where we can all hold space together, I think it just makes sense that, um, so that we don't lose people, but we continue to, um, uh, as we're saying, we want more diverse people in. And once we get them there, then we must have places to retain them and make them feel welcome so they don't feel like the other. And I think that's the other, the, the other, the other piece to this whole thing. So um, I'm excited to see that kind of movement happening uh, within some of these organizations. Well, Austin, it has been my pleasure to have you on the show. You have such a big heart. You are a source of light. You are a source of wonderful information and knowledge and we appreciate you. Thank you so much. And I am really honored to be able to, to share my thoughts with you all uh, during the Pride Month. And I just appreciate the work ACNL has done with me through the years since I was a, since I was a graduate nurse, I've been a part of this organization. So I'm really honored that um, the work that I'm doing is being appreciated and recognized. And the fact that um, we're doing this, the fact that ACN, ACNL has reached out to me um, and has had such a warm reception with this last conference around this topic that people, it says to me that people are interested showing up, asking questions that they're curious. I was always curious within this organization, would my work be accepted? And they have consistently welcomed me into this space with this topic. So um, it is that people are interested um, in hearing about and learning about. So I am, I am honored to be able to share this and that's my offering. 
I'm so happy to hear that. And lastly, Austin, for all of our listeners, how can people learn more about you and this amazing work that you're doing? You can always find me on Instagram, LinkedIn. I'm on the social media, Twitter. I do the, I do, I do the major three. Um, I'm not quite a TikToker yet, but I'm pondering. Um, I'm also um, in the midst of doing my own show. I'll do a little plug here for my own show, Becoming a Nation which is happening as part of the Hollywood Fringe Festival that's taking place at the Los Angeles LGBT Center. Um, I'm telling my story from crack to PhD was my story, a drag queen story, because I, I, I do this very vulnerable, raw sort of journey that I take people on as I disclose my own sort of personal journey uh, in my life and in, in, and in the nursing profession and ed- educational journey. It's, 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 it's been quite a journey of perseverance and determination and hope and obviously triumph. Um, and I, I, as I'm telling this story, I'm transforming into my drag persona and I end, I end the show in a drag number. So it's really fun. So um, I do, I would love to have people come out um, and support that. You can get more information on that show, Becoming Austin Nation at the um, Hollywood.org, um, hollywoodfringe.org. Let me get it right. Um, you can search for my show, but um, we're running throughout the month of June. I'm doing four performances um, throughout the month of June. We opened, matter of fact, I opened tonight. I did a preview and I'm opening officially tonight at 8 p.m. So um, I, I'm excited, but there'll be other opportunities uh, for me throughout the month of June. I think my last performance will be on the 24th. So there's several more opportunities to catch it live or on live stream. So you have options. Wonderful. Well, congratulations on your new show. Good luck tonight. And everyone be sure to check out Becoming Austin Nation. Our guest today was Dr. Austin Nation, professor at Cal State Fullerton and clinical administrative supervisor at the Keck School of Medicine. Austin, thank you so much for joining us. I appreciate you sharing with us and we value your expertise and knowledge on this important topic. We'd love to hear your feedback. Email us at socialmedia at acnl.org and connect with us on LinkedIn and Facebook at ACNL Nurse. And as always, if you like the show, please remember to rate, review, and share the show. ACNL in Action is presented by the Association of California Nurse Leaders. To learn more about the show or ACNL in general, visit acnl.org. Thanks for listening.